I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. This is the result, um, as you can see, of uh, many, many years, as you may not know, of Caballero's work. It's a book that's been unwritten many more times than it was written, you say at the beginning. And it's had many, many of those unwritten incarnations that go back uh, a good way. In fact, I sort of got the impression that it might have been your first book at one point. You know, as you say, as a child, this is a story you always meant to tell. And then suddenly it was a story that he was absolutely not going to tell. And even within the book, you were definitely not going to tell the story. And then here it is. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the ghosts yeah. of, of this? Well, first of all, I would like to tell a tiny story, if you let me, that my editor and publisher, Bill Swinson, knows by heart because I always tell the story here when I come here. Uh, the first time, I don't know if you know it, the first time Roman Jacobson, the great Russian linguist, came to, went to Harvard, he was welcomed by the president of the university who told him, Mr. Jacobson, somebody told, I've been told that you speak 14 languages. And Jacobson said, yes, it's true, but I speak all of them in Russian. <laughs> so I speak English, but I sp as well as Italian and other languages, uh, but I speak in, 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 in Spanish. <laughs> and, well, yes, uh, yes, yes, this is uh, the first book I wanted to write. Why? Because, because for me to write a novel is to formulate a complex question in the most possible complex way. That's to write a novel and not to answer it. <laughs> or, I mean, you cannot answer the question in a very, in, in a taxative, unequivocal, uh, you know, clear way. You can, you, you must answer it, if you answer it, in an ambiguous, equivocal, polyedric, ironical way, right? In fact, the answer <laughs> is the, yeah, it's the quest for an answer. Uh, so the question itself, the book itself. Anyway, and my, the first serious question I, I asked myself, had to do, as I think, I think this is general, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a normal guy, so this is general, has to do with, with uh, my family, with my, yeah, I mean, my family, I, I come from, I, I live in Barcelona, but I come from a tiny village in Extremadura, close, the, so close to the Portuguese border, and... Uh, called Iba Hernando. Called Iba Hernando, exactly. It's a poor... 
it's a poor zone of Spain. But in the 30s and 20s was really poor, really. And the hero of my family was the, I would say, the main, the main character of this book, or apparently the main character of this book. Uh, was a young boy called Manuel Mena, was the uncle of my, of my mother. And, you know, was a, my, my family was, were the rich people in, the, in, the, in this tiny town. Mm. I mean, uh, the rich people that when they went out of the town, were, of the little town, were poor, of course, because the, the little town, the, the two classes were of people that could eat a bit and the people that almost couldn't eat. That was the difference, you know, the social difference in this, in this place. And my family could eat uh, happily, right? And this boy was the first boy, the first mm, mm, person in, the, in this uh, little village that could go to the university. Uh, almost the first, of course, of the of the family, and he was a sort of young intellectual or something like that. And uh, when the war started, thirty-six, he became uh, an idealist. Uh, you know, he went, to, he enrolled in Franco's army. He was a, he became a, a phalangist. Uh, phalangism was the you know the version, the Spanish Hispanic version of of fascism with all its nuances and things like that, but the Spanish version of, of, of fascism. And he went to the war, he enrolled in, a, he became an official, he went to the, he, he enrolled in, a, in, a, in an elite unit, uh, and he, he, he was in the worst battles of, of the war, Teruel, uh, uh, Lerida, which is not a famous battle, but it was a very important battle. Uh, and, and at the end he died in combat, in the worst battle of the war, well, in fact, the worst battle of the, of the Spanish history, which is La Batalla del Ebro, almost at the end of the war. And he became the official hero of my family. And my, for my mother, which is in fact the secret protagonist of this book, was the hero, the, the total hero. Of course, she, she was five years when the war began, seven years when this guy, when this young boy died. He went to the war with, he was 17 years old, he was a kid. Mm. And when he died, my mother was seven, and for her was more than more than a, an uncle was a, almost a, a brother because she lived with him. And for her was you know the great guy, the, you know the prince that went to the war, the hero that went to the war to save the family, to save the homeland, to save a religion, etc. <coughs> so just to make clear, we're talking about the Spanish Civil War here, not not the Second World War. Yeah. Yeah. So so my family, my my mother. Talk to me all the time about uh, about this boy, mm. and uh, you know, for me it was a, a permanent presence because uh, uh, I asked myself all the time why my family wasn't the wrong side of the of the history, right? But wait, why, they, let's why... roll back. When at what point did you know that was the wrong side? That's a good question. <laughs> when and not not I mean when I was a kid, I thought that the Frankist side was the, the the I mean the good guys were there. And, but really soon, maybe when I was 10 or something like that, I become aware that I was wrong. And I, my family had, had, had been in the wrong side and that this guy was on the wrong side. And this was a story that was important for me because, you know, I, I went to, to Catalonia as, as, as many people in, in South of Spain in the, in the 60s, but I keep coming back to this little town and uh, and I knew that my fam and, and I knew that my family had been important there. That it was still important. That my f in, in in this little town and as in many little towns in Spain during the war happened 
awful things, terrible things, killings. And I didn't know what my family had done. I mm. knew that my family was important. My, for instance, my grandfather, which is one of the uh, main characters in the book, mm. was the leader of the uh, phalangist party in the little town. I knew after that, in fact, when I was finishing the book, that he had been also the first major of, the, of this town. But I didn't know what, what had happened. And I was scared to know. Uh, there is a character in the book, of course, after that, all my family was, all my family was Frankist, but after that, all my family is a leftist. We are all, of le which is logical. And there's a, this, this character, which is a, one of my cousins. He was a, in, in politics for a long time in the par Spanish parliament and in, in the European parliament. And he asked me at a certain point, at a certain point, when I told him that I wanted to write the book on this hero of the family and on, on, the, on the Frankish past of the family. He asked me, are you sure you want to know? Which was a good question because uh, he says something that is very, I mean, it's, uh, it's common sense. Maybe you, you're going to find things that are not beautiful. What are you going to do if you find these kind of things? Are you going to tell these things? Or what about your mother? What is going to happen with this? So yes, this is the book I wanted to write from the beginning. And it was a difficult book. In fact, for me, that's why it's the most important book I've, I've uh, published. Because it's the, the book that I wanted to publish from the beginning, to write from the beginning. Oh, can you say more about what was stopping you and what you found, what allowed you to do it now? I mean, that's the I story, mean, sort of, but then it, what, what is the... I was scared. Right. It's very simple. I was scared. I'm, to, to begin with, to begin with, I didn't know if it was possible to write the book. Then I thought I was stupid and I thought, well, still I am, but anyway, <laughs> I thought that, that it was possible to not to deal with my own past. I mean, it was possible to say, I don't have anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't care about what my family did. I don't care about my past. I don't care about my her heritage, my bad heritage. Mm -hmm. We all have a good heritage and a bad heritage, right? All of them, personally and collectively. That's obvious, right? And we don't know more or less what to do with the good heritage. But what about the bad heritage? What do we do with that? For us Spanish people, the worst heritage is obviously the war, you know, a terrible war, and, and which didn't last three years, as the book the books said. It lasted 43 years mm. because, of, obviously, the uh, dictatorship was the extension of the war by other means. I mean, the war, in fact, didn't finish in 39, but in, I don't know, 75 when Franco died, 78 with the Constitution, in my opinion, 81, 30, uh, 23rd February 1981, when the last classical coup d'etat, the coup d'etat uh, happened in Spain. Anyway, what do we do with that? Mm. We conceal it, we, we edulcorate it, mm -hmm. we invent another um, past to, you know, to, to uh, a better past as my, as you know, my, my, the last, my last book deal with, with a guy who invented, was called Enrique Marco, who invented, you know, a romantic, epic, melodramatic, wonderful past to conceal his real past. The imposter, this is, yeah. Yeah, the imposter. You know, he invented everything. What we do with that? Uh, or we look at it. And my answer is, my answer is that it's, it's better to, to look at it. I mean, finally, you should do it. 
it's better to first of all to know it in all its complexity and then to understand it mm. and to understand is not to justify is exactly the contrary is giving you the instruments not to repeat the same mistakes so finally understood that i understood that that it was it was compulsory it was necessary to to first know and then understand know is very to know is very difficult to know the past of your own family is very difficult especially if your family as all families have been in in uh, different uh, difficult circumstances like the war for instance mm. because our families I mean, there's a fog, yeah, right, on this on, on our bad heritage. Mm. People that have been, um, I'm looking also. I'm, I'm looking to, to my because yesterday we were talking about that with my publisher and my editor. Uh, people that have been in very difficult circumstances, a war and things like that, don't want to talk about that, and it's logical, and they have the right to to shut up, to be silent. But I think that we must know. We have the obligation to know. Because, why? Because if you know your past, your bad heritage, your heritage, but especially your bad heritage, and you understand it, you can control it. If you don't know it and you don't understand it, it is this past that governs you. And then you keep repeating all the time the same mistakes, which is, by the way, what's happening today, not in Spain, not to me, to everybody around, you know, in Occident, we are repeating, obviously, the same mistakes that we did in the 30s, right? Yeah, well, as, as, obviously. As, as, <laughs> there's, this, there's this sentence, by, I love it, by Bernard Shaw that says, uh, the only thing that we learn from experience is that we don't learn anything from experience. <laughs> so we keep repeating once the same mistakes. Uh, yeah. So, you sorry. No, no, no. That, that that's very, very clear. I mean, it's also a book full of unanswerable questions, which is part of something. It's part of what you have to deal with. I mean, there are things that you want to know and can't know, and there are other things that are actively masked. I mean, you know, documents that are questionable, um, stories that people don't want to tell uh, or haven't told before. Um, but I suppose one of the things that we were talking about earlier is the question of whether it's a book about the past, really. I mean, you. It's not. Right. So you talk about your bad heritage or good heritage, but actually it's not, not just the heritage that's in view. Okay. This is not only in, in, in the case of... This yeah. is not only... Okay. <laughs> Put it over Because Sarah I need my, my hands. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't... I mean, I hate when people say that I write historical novels. I don't like it. Uh, because I don't write historical novels. I write novels about the present, but about the special present, let's say it. I mean, I think, Gabi, that we live in a sort of dictatorship of the present. Yeah, but not in Spain, everywhere. I mean, this is due, in my opinion, to the overwhelming power of the media. I mean, for the media, you are a journalist. Uh, present... <laughs> my, I'm the dictator. Yeah, the present... No, the media have, you know, wonderful things, but they have side effects. And for the media, Today, present, present is not, not today, but now. And what happened this morning, well, it's almost... Uh, and what happened last week, it's past. And what happened uh, a year ago is like prehistory or something like that. And this creates a, a, a false view of, of reality. Mm. And, and for people, you know, history is something that is in bookstores and, and in, in, the, in the archives. And, 
and uh, this freakies like myself who are interested in it, and, but it's not relevant for the present, right? Yeah. And this is, in my opinion, this creates a, a completely false vision of reality because past, and especially the past of which there is still memory and witnesses, yeah. this past is not, I mean, is, this past is a dimension of the present without which the present is mutilated. I mean, there is this mm. sentence by, by Fulner, in Rikim Fornan, by Fulner, which is a leitmotiv of, of the imposter, that says, past is not dead. It's a wonderful sentence. Past is not dead. It's not even past. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, and what, what, I mean, half of this book is set in the present to begin with. And then what, what this book does is to try to show, and not only this book, I, I, think, that, I think that my books from soldiers on mm-hmm. uh, are a sort of uh, humble battle against this dictatorship of the present. Mm-hmm. I mean, they try to show that, that this present, that the present, that the, this past is here, working on us, right? That the, the Spanish present doesn't begin today, not in... 1975, but in 1936, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of the present. And it, this is everywhere because the present in this country doesn't begin today or with the arrival of this guy, you know, this American guy here, or, uh, <laughs> or, 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 you know, it's in, in 39 or 40, right? So that's for me very obvious. In fact, Soldier of Salamis, which is a book linked to this one, very obviously, I mean, we'll for me, this, that, yeah. this book is like... It's like the end of the of Soldiers of Salamis, and it will be the end of something because I'm going to begin, I'm going to reinvent myself in my next book. I hope so. Uh, this is the end. This is the, this book is the end. You're of, done with the Spanish Civil War. It is impossible to be done with the Spanish Civil War <laughs> because it's the beginning of the present. Um, what's at the end of then? What what's what? What's the end of? What this is the end of what? This is the end of something that began in Soldiers of Salamis. I mean. Soldier of Salamis, you can describe this book, which has a lot of... Yes, we're coming to... Yeah, we're, no, no, but let's... Yeah, keep I mean, going. I mean, you could, you could, you could say that Soldier of Salamis was... You can read this book as a sort of uh, vindication of the Republican past, right? Which is the past that I think we should... I mean, it's a, the, the democratic past in Spain, right? You can, can we tell a, the story of that briefly? For those of you who haven't read Soldiers of Salamis, it's um, about a man who was not sure, who escaped the firing squad, he becomes the hero because, you know, he's survived, but in fact the real hero is the person who found him in the forest and let him go. So the person who saved him, who is invisible, is in fact a Republican, and the person who becomes a hero is a, a nationalist. And then, so that's very good, but this is a fiction. And this sort of counterpart, the current counterpart, Lord of All the Dead, is, well, in fact, a character in, in the book, David Treba, the filmmaker who made a film of Soldiers of Salamis says, oh, I see, so you invented a pretty fiction to cover up your, you know, whatever he says, ugly past. So the, so the true ugly past, which is now coming as a sort of secondary chapter, um, was in a way, I suppose, well, he's suggesting the reason why a kind of pretty cover had to be made yeah. in Soldiers of Salamis. But, but anyway, I'm just sort of trying to illustrate the sort of the twinning of these two books. So yes. Could we co- but go on. Yes, yes. No, no, it's like that. I mean, you, just, you describe it perfectly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you can read the Soldier Psalm as a, as a vindication of this uh, good inheritance, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, this is an assumption of the bad heritage. That's why these books mm. are like that. But 
Yeah, in Soldiers of Salamis began something which was uh, special. I mean, before Soldiers of Salamis, I wanted to be a postmodern writer or something like that. <laughs> I would say a postmodern American writer. And then I went. Which to one? Which one did you want to be? You know, Donald Barthelmer, <laughs> Robert Coover, this this kind of guys. Uh, uh, then I went to live to the states <laughs> for two years, and I dis- I made a great discovery. The discovery was that I was Spanish, <laughs> and, and, I, and I began to I began to to sleep siesta to talk you know a lot out loud how and to you know eat at three o'clock in the in the afternoon. Anyway, um, and so this began something different, which was. In many respects, the past was present in these books. In my mm. previous books, was not present. Politics, for instance. Mm. Soldiers, you can summarize this book saying that it is about a guy of my generation, 30, I was 39 when I wrote this book, that thinks as my generation thought at that moment. You, it is incredible, but it's like that. We're talking about 2001, that the civil war was, you know, as remote and alien to us as the Battle of Salamis. We were fed up with all that. I mean, we wanted to be, yes, postmodern, Tarantino, Almodovar, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> Europe, normal European guys, whatever it means. Uh, and the, the Civil War was old, awful, and, and this guy, this guy of my generation, called, by the way, Javier Cercas, he, by chance, He's a journalist, and he investigates this tiny episode, forgotten episode of the Spanish Civil War, and finally he discovers that past is present. That that past is a dimension of the present without which the present is mutilated. That in that past that he thought that it was completely irrelevant for the present, is the it is he finds there the sense of his own life, mm-hmm. right? So this was the beginning of this taking the past into the present. And this was the beginning of many things of novels without fiction and blah, 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 blah. But now with this book, I'm finished with this. I want to, <laughs> I want to begin another life as a writer. Now you're going to be Robert Coover. Robert, no, 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 I'd love to, but no, <laughs> Well, we can talk about what's next in a minute. But I want to ask you, you raised that question of form, which is very interesting, and the question of whether this is non-fiction or fiction or a non- what a non-fiction novel might be and what it might be in your hands. But Javier Cercas, the character in Soldiers of Salamis, who is a a fictional character and played by a woman, in fact, in the film. Here, there's also a character called Javier Cercas, who is referred to in the third person with his full name when he investigates things or when he's told things. How is he different from the character in Soldiers? Completely different. I mean, (laughs) in these books, in this from Soldiers to this one, Almost all the main characters are called Javier Cercas, <laughs> but they are all completely different. I mean, the Javier Cercas, yes, completely different. I mean, the Javier Cercas of Soldiers of was completely invented, or yes. And this one is really close to myself because this is almost a non-fiction novel. It's not exactly a non-fiction novel. Uh, the Anatomy of a Moment was a non-fiction novel. The Imposter was a non-fiction novel. This one is not exactly a non-fiction novel. Why? Let me tell you. This is a very, this is, I mean, I think that that to write a novel, I, I told you, formulate a question is to formulate a question in a, a complex question in the most complex possible way. But as every question is different, the way to formulate the question must be different in mm-hmm. every novel, right? Mm-hmm. 
So it's like creating a game to write novel for me, right? So you should discover, the writer should discover the rules of this, this new game and the reader, while he writes the book, and the reader should discover these rules while he, he reads the book. Mm -hmm. But every rule is different. Every book has different rules. In this case, in this case, yes, because if not, I mean, if you have two books with the same rules, one of them is bad book, for sure. <laughs> and, and in this case, the, I mean, it's a special, the, the rules are special. I mean, the, in fact, there are two narrators in the book. One of them is a, I would say, yes, it's, it's a, like a public notary, right? Like a mm. historian, classic historian, historian, a very, very traditional historian, doesn't want to invent anything. He's a stick to the, to the facts and to the documents. He discusses the documents. He wants to, you know, be very precise and very, almost not interpret anything, just to tell the story of, of uh, Manuel Mena, the main character, and my family, and my little town in the 20s and 30s. I always remember this sentence by, by Tolstoy, wonderful sentence. He says, picture your village and then you will picture the world, right? Through the, the tiny village you can, that's, that's the idea, to tell the story of the Spain in the 20s and 30s through this microcosmos. Mm -hmm. You can put it like that. Anyway, and this, 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 this historian despises, you know, the Literature, this historian wants to, okay. And then on the other side, you have what I would call the, the process of the novel, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I sometimes say that, that I write adventure novels on the adventure of writing novels. Because, on the, and this is very general in this, from soldiers on. Uh, on the one side, on the, on, on the one hand, you, you, have, you have a story of the recent past, and then the process of telling the story. So, my doubts, my perplexities or the doubts and perplexities of the narrator, uh, you know, how, how he investigates mm. this uh, past, how, etc., uh, etc. Et I remember recently reading a letter by Italo Calvino, which was one, one of my heroes when I was a post, well, I wanted to be a postmodern writer, <laughs> but still, still I love him. And he says in a, center, in, a, in a letter to a friend, there are some books, it's a, one, it's a wonderful well, he says there are some books in which telling the showing the process of the book itself is is almost a moral obligation, mm. which meaning which means also a, an aesthetic obligation because in mm -hmm. literature moral and aesthetic is the same thing, right? It's both. So and this this second narrator, it's called Javier Cercas, right? Mm -hmm. This guy that shows the process of of the novel, and and this is a this is more he's more free. I mean he he's a little. Here, for instance, it is very important, the humor in this part of the book, you know, and here I invent a bit, just, let's say... <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. Yeah, let's say two percent, but it's not, I mean, it's not important. I mean, I don't invent, I stick to the facts and to history in the history part, but I invent something. And I think that the reader feels it. I mean, it's not inventing, I mean, for, for example, I invent some conversation, but it's, it's, you remember the discussion on Velázquez and Goya about the war. Blah, that's not that didn't exactly happen like that in that moment. But it is two percent. It's two percent. The point. The point. The point. Gabi is that. I've the, lost all a, faith in you now. That's it. No. The point, I, is, I, the point is that is that in a true story, in a non-fiction novel, if with two percent, everything becomes fiction. I mean, 
it's like in a in a yeah. glass of water you put two I mean a bit of uh, poison and you cannot drink it so in my opinion this is not exactly I mean we can discuss on that but in my opinion <laughs> this is not exactly a non-fiction novel because okay. I take some liberties some 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 I, it's I, more I, fictional than a non-fiction novel would allow itself to be yeah uh, yeah because uh, it, it, the anatomy of a moment for instance is just I mean, no pure fact yeah, yeah. And yeah, but you're still calling it a novel, thing. so I suppose I wonder if you if you're quite on board with that idea of why it would be described as a novel if it's nonfiction. But yeah. uh, we sort of I suppose we're getting kind of well. Do you have a, an answer? Oh to, yeah. yeah, it's very. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not so difficult. Yeah, theoretically, I remember the uh, Forster the Forster's definition of of novel, right? And she says it's fiction or blah blah blah. It's fiction, so we accept that novel is a fiction, but. And I say, but my answer, my my question is, why should the novel be a fiction? Why? I well, mean, why, why is a non-fiction a novel? Uh, because there was this guy called Miguel de Cervantes, uh, <laughs> that incredibly was a Spanish guy, <laughs> and uh, and he invented this thing called novel. And the first rule he gave us a rule. The first rule. He would, he gave us this incredible instrument that creates, that has created modernity. Without novel, there's no modernity, in my opinion. And uh, and I'm very serious with that. And he gave us this instrument and said, in this new genre, there are no rules. Or the first rule of this genre is that there are no rules. So you can do whatever you want. And this was a complete revolution because you know, before, of course, I mean, in the classical tradition. Uh, the genres, the literary genres have their, from Aristotle on, their, you know, their rules. But here, no, you can do whatever you want, which means that it's, it's more difficult because every book needs to find its own rules. So the thing and, you were describing... And, and, sorry, no, 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 and no. I finish. And, and, and in, some, in this book, in The Anatomy of a Moment, which is in fact my first uh, non-fiction novel, Soldiers of Solomon is a false non-fiction novel yeah. <laughs> it is it is the, the narrator says it is a, it is a non-fiction novel but we must not trust it's unreliable the right yeah. yeah yeah i mean Cervantes <laughs> said that he didn't invent he didn't write the he didn't invent the story of don quixote it was a uh, an arabic guy called fita Mendengali, but it's not true <laughs> he invented that he, he cheated on that okay so yeah, in the anatomy moment which is my first non-fiction novel i was this is like that. I was working for three years in our Kennedy's assassination, right? Which is the uh, the uh, 20th of February 1981. Is the last coup d'état in Spain, classic coup d'état coup in Spain. You remember these guys uh, in uh, entering the parliament, the civil guards entering the parliament and shooting. You've seen the, the images. They are incredible, wonderful. Extraordinary, but the, the greatest document, historical document, in my opinion, of the 20th century in Spain. Okay, so I was working on that for three years, you know, talking to hundreds of people and reading hundreds of books, blah, 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 and, and, and I trying to write a novel, meaning a fiction, right? Mixed okay, yeah. Pure fiction doesn't exist. When we talk, we talk about fiction, we talk about a mixture of fiction and reality. Pure fiction is a fiction. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Never exists. I mean, from Homer now, the, the, the literature is like that. Anyway, and I discovered that I was wrong, that I couldn't go on with that. I was, this, was, this was a bad choice to write 
a fiction on another fiction because the 20th of February as the, the Kennedy's assassination is a, the biggest, one of the biggest fiction in Spain. I mean, it, was, it is a bunch of lies <laughs> and of half-truths and uh, crazy theories and etc. And the proof is that all Spanish people have a theory on the coup d'etat. I mean, what is a Spanish guy or a Spanish woman? A, a woman or a guy that has a theory on the 23rd February 1981. I'm looking uh, to uh, Eduardo Mendoza, the, probably the greatest Spanish novelist alive. He's here, and uh, and uh, Hola, Eduardo. And, uh, and it's like that. I mean, everybody has a theory on that. As what is an American guy, a guy that has a theory on Kennedy's assassination, of course. That's what, it's, yeah. a, it's a. That's how they give you the citizenship. Exact, yeah. it's, it's the exact point or where all the um, demons of the uh, of the of, of the Spanish past converge. Anyway, I decided at that point when I discovered when I thought that uh, uh, the 23rd February was a fiction, was an enormous fiction, a collective fiction, that it was ridiculous. <clears throat> it was redundant. It was literally irrelevant to write a fiction on another fiction. And so I decided to write a novel, a book with the form of a novel, mm -hmm. you know, with the faith in the form of a novel and a novelist, but without this fiction. And that, that's the book. It's the same with the, the imposter. I mean, with, with the imposter, I was dealing with a walking fiction. Mm -hmm. This guy mm -hmm. was a walking fiction. He invented everything of, uh, about his life. Mario Vargas Llosa said that he was the greatest, greatest imposter in history. And I agree, he's the Messi of the imposter. He, and, so, and so it was ridiculous. It was, again, redundant, literally relevant to write the fiction of this guy. And what, what I organized in the book was a sort of battle between fiction and fact, or between... Yes, uh, fantasy and reality. And, and, and I insist, why not? Why not write? No. If you need, what Fermantes said is, do whatever you need. Right? And mm -hmm. I, I try to do what Cervantes asked me to do. <laughs> I try to be very disciplined and very. <laughs> so, in the, um, in the sort of looser parts of, of this book, there's a, a scene actually very early on where the character Javier Cercas is talking to David Trueba, who is the, is the filmmaker, um, who'd made the, the film The Soldiers of Salamis, and he says, what, don't, don't do this. You know, what are you thinking? And, and he exactly spells out, although possibly in a fictional conversation, the, the controversy that's going to erupt as a result of writing this book. And then they both go on this kind of sem semi-road trip and decide that they're on board, you and Trueba, right? Yeah. So, I mean, can you, can you briefly evoke what you imagined the controversy was going to be and whether it's been met with that in Spain as a result? No, uh, David was right, as always. He's <laughs> a very intelligent, he's a wonderful writer also, and, and he was right. I mean, when you write about one of these subjects in, in Spain, the book, if, if the book is not controversial, it is not, cannot be a good book. It is impossible. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, in this book, we're dealing with a fascist, young fascist, that it is a person, a complex person. And uh, this is very difficult, apparently, to accept for lots of people. Look, we, we prefer lies than truths. We have here uh, the proof, the walking proof today in London. The, the We've welcomed him with open arms. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he's, a, he's the greatest liar in the world, and people like lies. It's, I mean, it's like that. 
And oh. when we deal with the worst past, we prefer... I mean, and Marco was a walking proof of that also. Marco was telling lies all the time about the Spanish past. Mm. You know, creating this heroic past, edulcorating the, uh, the Frankism, you know, uh, saying that, no, yeah. Uh, there were just a few Frankists in, in Spain and, and yeah, the other sweetening were, it, yeah. Yeah, Democrats and things like that. And, and we were all anti-Frankist and etc., which was completely false. But uh, here were you accused of being an apologist for the phalanges. I mean, is that... Yeah, that? Be, yeah because they... Yes, yes. I, it was... Uh, I mean, I expected that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's logical because, first of all, first of all, uh, I think that... Okay, I, rem I was remembering something. I was with, uh, I was friends at the end of his life with Todorov, Svetan Todorov, because he was very interesting. He was very generous with the imposter and, well, anyway. And we met sometimes in Paris. And one day we were discussing on one thing, because yeah, I, was, I was talking to him about this book, the problems of the book, this book, blah, blah, blah. And he told me something that is very interesting. Uh, it is difficult to think about a book, European book, Occidental book after the war, whose main character is a fascist, and it is not a monster. It is not a monster. Okay, you can, you can think of Lucien Lacombe. The, Lacombe uh, Lucien, yeah. Ah, pardon, yeah. Lacombe Lucien. The, uh, Louis Mal. But it is a, he is a monster. He is a burglar, he is a... Uh, hmm. But no, here, I mean, not because we have, I think that we have exactly given a simplified version of the past. I mean, fascism was very attractive. Was very attractive. Lots of people, a, a thousand of people around the world, were fascinated by it. Mm. It was, it was, it was fashion. It was. If you read the the speech by Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, uh, that probably this poor Manuel Mena, 17 years old, heard. I'm almost sure because he lived. Uh, close to the place where Jose Antonio in Cáceres gave the speech. If you read that, Jose Antonio was talking about, you know, fascism, uh, phalangism was anti-capitalist, anti-system, was, you know, revolution, was... Hmm. Uh, fascists didn't go with horns, horns with, 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 in the street. No, they were, you know... And now we give this vision of it was very attractive. I mean, Hitler was very attractive for a lot of people. Yeah, right? well, he would all the reasons why people would have, would have followed them, yeah. And, and if you say that, you become suspect. Hmm. And you become suspect because people, uh, some people don't understand the difference between understanding and justifying. I mean, what literature does, according to me, and that's why I'm not a, anymore a postmodern writer, when I was a postmodern <laughs> writer, I thought that literature was not useful, that literature, you know, it was a a game and that literature just that and 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 it was not useful i was completely against the idea of politics and literature and you know jean paul sartre and all this bullshit now now i'm sure that literature is useful as long as it doesn't want to be useful because it, if it wants to be useful it becomes propaganda or pedagogy and then it stops being being useful but if literature wants to understand everything then becomes useful. I mean, it's not enough. I mean, to understand, which is what great literature, according to me, does, 
is to is exactly the contrary of the justify is to give you the instrument to not so you don't make the same mistakes as your ancestors. I mean, if some genius, let's say Shakespeare, Cervantes, Dostoevsky, uh, one of them, could make us understand. I mean, it's not enough for a novelist to say that Hitler was a bad guy. We all know that. I mean, that Hitler was an, uh, uh, an assassin. Or what. Okay, we know, we know that. The kids know that. The question that a novelist, a genius, would formulate in the most complex possible way would be why this awful guy, fascinated, and his bunch of you know, guys around him, fascinated not only Germany, one of the most civilized countries in the world, but half of the world. Mm. That's, that's the question. And if some Dostoevsky or some Cervantes or some could formulate this question in the most complex possible way and show us why, then I'm not saying that Hitler wouldn't repeat, but we would have some instruments mm. so that this would be more difficult. It's, it's the same, I finished, Gabi. It's like there, <laughs> there is a bomb here. Imagine there is a bomb in this, in this wonderful library. It's not enough to say, oh, there is a bomb, there is a bomb, there is a bomb. It, 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 it should be here, you should call some Dostoevsky. people so that he can, uh, how, how you call that, the guy who knows, who understands, and disactivate the, the bomb, understands the bomb, a guy I who see. understands the bomb, and then deactivates the bomb. And that, that's, that's what real thinking and real literature does, can give us instruments so that we understand. But people don't like that. I mean, it's very to say, if you don't say all fascists were bad guys, bad guys, you are just uh, justifying uh, fascism. And that's a big mistake. That explains, in my opinion, why we are repeating the same mistakes that we did in the 30s, which is obvious, right? So, so you're deactivating the bomb, or the readers no, are deactivating I, 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 the, the great bomb, Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky. Well, this bomb, this small yeah. bomb here, in your family, what, do, what should we take from that, if anything? I mean, I'm, I doubt you'll be prescriptive, but is there anything we should be taking from the book that will teach us something specific? Uh, I don't have an, an, an answer to that. The, the answer is the book. I mean, <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. It's the best answer I can give to that, right? The most complex and, uh, answer I can give to that. So yeah. It's not possible to... The answer is the question. The answer is the question itself, exactly. <laughs> it's the book itself, yeah. We should let you ask some complex questions if you'd like. Um, although there is also, if we have time, um, we were thinking um, Javier might read from the book in Spanish, in which case I can read um, the translation. But there's a, a really wonderful sentence at the end. Actually, it's a three-page sentence, just to warn you, <coughs> um, which gives an, a, a brilliant evocation of how the past is still with us or how certain things never die. Um, but let, let's see how many questions you have first. I think we'll leave that to the end. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
You you appear in the last two books, um, as you've mentioned already, and um, I'm not I'm not bothered about the sort of <coughs> truth, the kind of fiction, non-fiction uh, point you know, to discuss that. But I'm interested, just out of interest, to know when when you're in the book or the person with your name is in the book, um, is that is that you? It is a mask. That I put myself. I mean, it depends on the book. In this case, I mean, it is always a mask. Mask is what persona means in in Latin, right? And, and the mask is something that conceals you, but also something that reveals you. Probably reveals you more than it conceals you. I mean, if I if I come here with a mask of a pirate, it says. A lot about me, right? About my. <laughs> so in every book is different. In in Soldiers it was it was a very uh, different mask. Well, for for many reasons I, I could. And in this case, the mask is really close to me because because I'm dealing with my family. I'm dealing with my personal heritage. To try to deal with the. I mean, what literature does is to or try to do is to transform the particular into the universal. That's Aristotle, right? So that's what we try to do. Uh, through my personal history, to tell the story that it's not only my story. And, and in every book is different, I insist. I mean, Soldis was very different from myself. The imposter was close to myself. This is the closest, uh, I would say. What I mean is that some of these masks are more real than myself. More, more myself. It's like the eye of the poet. When a poet says I, it's that himself. Uh, something that he invented, some tool he invents to say something, right? You've explored the past and the effects of the past on the present. Um, there's a lot going on in Spain. I know you're teaching in uh, Girona. I wondered if you want to kind of tell the stories of what's happening at the moment more directly, or if you think the best way to do that is to continue to explore um, a kind of a generational uh, story. What's happening in Catalonia, you mean? Yeah. Whoa. You knew that here. question was coming up. No, I can't, I can, right now it is impossible for me. I mean, I, I write in a newspaper and I write all the time about this, uh, this thing because because it's, you know, uh, very important for me also personally. I must say that it is a turning point, turning point in my life, what happened in 2017. Everything has changed. My view of things, everything has changed. Uh, so it is very important, apart from obviously being the most important crisis in the Spanish democracy. Uh, but I, I as a Catalan, as a Catalan, for me has been very important. Personally, but it would be impossible for me to write something like *The Anatomy of a Moment*, which is a book on a historical event, on a public event like that. It would be impossible to write a book like that about Catalonia. Completely impossible. I feel myself today. I can write articles, but I cannot write a book like that. Mm. I feel my. I feel that I am like you. You remember? We all remember Fabrizio del Dongo, the main character in. I don't know how you... In English, how is like a... Leopard. Uh, what? The leopard. No. The leopard. No, the, no. La, la, la Chartreuse. Oh, the Chartreuse of Palma, yeah. The Chartreuse. 
you remember the, the book, you remember that Fabrizio is like, it's a sort of Manuel Mena. It's a young boy, an idealist that, you know, is in love with Napoleon and at the beginning of the book he goes to Waterloo and he doesn't understand a word. He, he just, he doesn't understand anything. He just sees horses and dust and cries and Napoleon goes <laughs> and he, he, see, he doesn't even recognize his hero, right? So he doesn't understand anything. I feel like that. I feel like, like we need, I need to, I mean, the battle must stop and then the dust settle and then see, count the deaths and, uh, and, and, and see what has, and then, and then I, maybe I could write. And, but I'm, I'm going to tell you something that I told my uh, Bill Swainson, my publisher, I'm going to tell you something, which is, I, I was, I'm almost finished with a new book, which is completely different, I hope, from this one. It's a, I try to reinvent myself. I, I, I try to do something completely different. And I was really happy. I, it was a refuge for me when I was writing it, saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about this awful thing that is happening right now in Catalonia. I'm so happy. And I was, I was there in my, you know, my studio writing and happy. And now I'm rereading, rereading the book and I'm, I, I've seen that the subject of the book is what's happening in Catalonia. <laughs> I, I, it is like that, but it's like a dream, right? You have a dream or a nightmare, and the nightmare is about you are in an abyss, on the verge of falling in the abyss, but in fact you are, the subject is that you have problems with your wife or with your mother or whatever. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? It's, uh... <laughs> so that's my way right now of coping with this story. Um, so from the particular to the universal, why is Spain so unable to be accountable with his past? Good, good question. Okay, when, when I was young, not necessarily postmodern now, I thought that my country was different from the other countries, that my, that my country had real problems with, with its past and the other countries were normal. They lived, you know, happy lives without problems with it. Now, I know, I, I, I don't think, I know that this is not true. That all countries, including the oldest democracy in the world, has problems. And for us, Spanish people, this country was like, you know, civilization and, you know, democracy and, and culture. And, you know, we were Africans or something like that. But no, all countries have, have problems with their past, especially with their past, uh, with their worst inheritance. The point is that our past, our worst past, is still uh, very present. Why? Because I, I, I said it before, the war didn't finish as your war finished in 45, or German war. The, the German people had real problems with their past. All European countries have problems still today with their past. And the point is that our, our war didn't finish in 45 as German war as the Second World War, the Spanish Civil War was the first act of this. You can read it like that, it's correct to read it like that, the, the prologue of the Second World War. But it didn't finish in 45, it finished in 75, something like that. So we are still dealing with it. I come from the Hay Festival where they asked me the same question, and I remember this, one of the, my favorite writers alive is a British writer, Cato uh, Ishiguro, from his great, is one of the greatest novelists alive, and he deals with this problem in his mm. last novels. His, his last novel, which is, in my, my opinion, by far the, wor the, the worst novel by Ishiguro. 
by far. <laughs> the very giant. Yes, the very giant. He deals with this problem. And what he says is, it is better not to unbury the giant, which is the worst past. It is better not to unbury it. Because if you unbury it, then the war is over again. And I don't believe that. I believe that uh, it, is, it is, I mean, in the transition, so-called transition in Spain from the dictatorship to democracy, we decided we, not only the, the political class, made a decision which was not to forget, it is completely true, uh, false, to put aside the past, to say, okay, we're not going to use that as a political weapon, etc. Mm. To put aside it and to look at the future, and to, but the past was there and everybody knew about that. And, you know, I can assure you, and as all Spanish people know that the newspaper will full of stories about the war, books about the war, novels about the war, uh, films about the war. So this story of the pact of, of, of forgetting is, is uh, completely false. But to put aside the past, this is true. And, but at the end, it is like an, in a personal trauma. I mean, if I, if, if I have um, something happens to my family, something really bad, I don't want to, I, I need to put it aside to go on. If it's really bad, I need to put it aside and say, okay, let's go, let's go on, let's look at the future, and, but I know that it's there. It's, this is not to forget. This is something completely different. But at the end, in my opinion, you must look at it and to know in, with all the complexities and to understand. And we had the opportunity to do that. In my opinion, the opportunity was uh, with, uh, I mean, at the beginning of this century. Unfortunately, with a movement, I don't like the name, called uh, historical memory, whatever. The movement of recovery of historical memory, I, I don't like the name. Anyway, it was a just movement. It was, it was unbury the giant and to kill the giant. Hmm. But something that was a necessity, so, so something that was uh, an urgency, generally felt in Spain, become I, in, in, in the in the, the imposter, which is my I would say my my most controversial book, especially in Spain, I call it the industry of memory. I mean, it became a, a fashion, and we didn't solve the problem, and we still have this problem, and it is not a problem of the past; it is is a problem of the present. Hmm. But all countries, we we all have problems with that. So that I think that it would be good if if um, Javier could read as he wrote it, and then I will read for those of you who. Don't speak Spanish if that's okay, even though that means ending on me, which is not quite what we no, want. No, but, okay. um, but this is like explaining the end of, of Game of Thrones or something. Right? Oh yeah, you explain like it and I'll find you the spot. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Cortés sigue hablando. Okay. One of the things, one of the reasons I, I finally wrote this book, one of them, <coughs> is that something that was a miracle happened, which was that I found the exact place where this hero of my mom had died. The exact place, meaning the exact room. Mm. And I went with my mom, which is, the, it says, the secret protagonist of the book, because she gave me the inheritance. And I found that. For me, it was, it, was a, it was a sort of miracle, because... Okay, so this happens in this place, which is a sort of palace in the middle of nowhere. And who is Cortés? We have to explain also. Oh, yes, Cortés is a wonderful guy. Uh, anyway, uh, but, okay, well, it's, it's, a, okay. it's a guy that helped me to find this place. Is the person that helped me to find this place. It's a wonderful character. And yes, he was my, my guide. My guide, yeah. Cortés seguía hablando. 
This happens like this is in the palace, right? Pero yo ya no lo escuchaba. Y poco a poco, la euforia y la sigilosa alegría en que me sentía levitar se convirtieron en otra cosa. O tal vez fui yo quien sintió que se estaba convirtiendo en otro, o que ya se había convertido en otro. Una especie de viejo y mediocre y feliz Ulises a quien, la a quien aquella expedición, por las tinieblas de aquel caserón vacío en busca del monarca de las sombras, which is the Mena, acabara de revelarle el secreto más elemental y más oculto, más recóndito y más visible. Y es que no nos morimos. Que Manuel Mena no había muerto. Que mi padre no había muerto y que mi madre no iba a morir. Eso pensé de golpe, o más bien lo supe. Que no morirían mi mujer, ni mi hijo, ni mi sobrino Néstor, que tampoco yo moriría. Con un estremecimiento de vértigo, pensé que nadie se muere. Pensé que estamos hechos de materia. Y que la materia no se destruye ni se crea, solo se transforma. Y que no desaparecemos. Nos transformamos en nuestros descendientes como nuestros antepasados se transformaron en nosotros. Pensé que nuestros antepasados viven en nosotros como nosotros viviremos en nuestros descendientes. No es que vivan metafóricamente en nuestra volátil memoria. Pensé. Viven físicamente en nuestra carne, en nuestra sangre y en nuestros huesos. Heredamos sus moléculas y con sus moléculas heredamos cuanto fueron. Nos guste o no, lo aborrezcamos o no, lo asumamos o no, nos hagamos cargo o no de ello. Somos nuestros antepasados como seremos nuestros descendientes. Pensé. Y en ese momento me abrumó una certeza que no había sentido nunca. Ahora pienso que podía haberla sentido en cualquier otro momento, mejor que debería haberla sentido, o por lo menos intuido. Pero el hecho es que fui a sentirla por primera vez, por vez primera allí, en aquel antiguo quirófano de aquella mansión abandonada de aquel pueblo perdido en la Tierra Alta. Junto a mi madre y mi mujer y Cortés y Josepa Miró, sentí que estaba en la cima del tiempo, en la cumbre infinitesimal y fugacísima y portentosa y cotidiana de la historia, en el presente eterno, con la legión incalculable de mis antepasados debajo de mí, integrados en mí, con toda su carne y su sangre y sus huesos, convertidos en mis huesos, mi sangre y mi carne, con toda su, su vida pasada convertida en mi vida presente, haciéndome cargo de todos, convertido en todos, o más bien siendo todos, comprendí que escribir sobre Manuel Mena era escribir sobre mí, que su biografía era mi biografía, que sus errores y sus responsabilidades y su culpa y su vergüenza y su miseria, y su muerte, y sus derrotas, y su espanto, y su suciedad, y sus lágrimas, y su sacrificio, y su pasión, y su deshonor, eran los míos, porque yo era él, como era mi padre, como era mi madre, y mi padre, y mi abuelo Paco, y mi bisabuela Carolina, del mismo modo que era todos los antepasados que confluyen en mi presente, igual que una muchedumbre, o una legión innumerable de muertos, o una selva de fantasmas, igual que todas las sangres que desembocan en mi sangre, viniendo desde el pozo, desde el pozo insondable, de nuestra infinita ignorancia del pasado. Comprendí que, comprendí que contar, que asumir la historia de Manuel Mena era contar y asumir la historia de todos ellos. Que Manuel Mena vivía en mí como vivían en mí todos mis antepasados. Eso pensé también. Y al final, borracho de lucidez o de euforia o de sigilosa alegría, me dije que esa era la última y mejor razón para contar la historia de Manuel Mena. La razón definitiva. Si había que contar la historia de Manuel Mena era sobre todo, me dije para desvelar el secreto que acababa de descubrir en el reino de las sombras, en la profunda oscuridad de aquel palacio olvidado y ruinoso donde empezó su leyenda y donde entonces lo vi, como escrito en una radiante obra maestra nunca escrita, iba a acabar mi novela. Aquel secreto transparente según el cual, aunque sea verdad que la historia la escriben los vencedores y la gente cuenta leyendas y los literatos fantasean, ni siquiera la muerte es segura. Esto no se acaba. Pensé, no se acaba nunca. Beautiful, so lovely to hear that. 
I'll just read the translation, beautifully translated actually by Anne McLean. Is it McLean she pronounces it? McLean, yeah, sorry. Uh, last week, um, uh, Juan Gabriel Vasquez pronounced it Anne McLean, and I thought he had special information. But anyway, Anne, Anne McLean um, <clears throat> is the translator here. Cortes was still talking, but I wasn't hearing him anymore. And bit by bit, the euphoria and stealthy joy in which I'd felt myself lifted turned into something else. Or maybe it was me who felt he was turning into someone else. A sort of happy and mediocre and old Odysseus, to whom that expedition through the shadows of that big empty house in search of the Lord of all the dead had just revealed the most elemental and most hidden, most recondite and most visible secret, which is that we don't die, that Manuel Mena had not died, that's what I thought all of a sudden, or rather what I knew, that my wife and my son and my nephew Nestor would not die, and I would not die either. With a shiver of vertigo, I thought that nobody dies. I thought that we are made of matter and that matter is not destroyed or created, it just transforms. And that we do not disappear, we transform into our descendants, just as our ancestors transformed into us. <coughs> I thought that our ancestors live on in us as we will live on in our descendants. It's not that they live metaphorically in our volatile memories, I thought. They live physically in our flesh and our blood and our bones. We inherit their molecules, and with their molecules we inherit everything they were, whether we like it or not, despise it or not, accept it or not, whether we take it on or not, we are our ancestors as we will be our descendants, I thought. And at that moment I was overwhelmed by a certainty I'd never felt. Now I think I could have felt it at any other moment, or better yet, that I should have felt it, or at least in intuited it, but the fact is that when I felt it for the first time, I was in that former operating theatre, in that abandoned mansion of that village lost in the middle of Terra Alta, beside my mother and my wife and Cortés and José Pamiro. I felt that I was at the summit of time, on the infinitesimal and so fleeting and extraordinary and daily peak of history, in the eternal present, with the incalculable legion of my ancestors beneath me, integrated in me, with all their flesh and their blood and their bones turned into my bones and my blood and my flesh, with all their past life turned into my present life, taking them all on, converted into all of them, or rather being them all. I understood that writing about Manuel Mena was also writing about myself, that his biography was my biography, that his mistakes and his responsibilities and his guilt and his shame and his misery and his death and his defeats and his fear and his filth and his tears and his sacrifice and his passion and his dishonor were mine. Because I was him as I was my mother and my father and my grandfather Paco and my great-grandmother Carolina in the same way that all those ancestors who gathered in my present just like a crowd or an innumerable legion of dead people or a forest of ghosts just like all the bloods that flowed into my blood coming from the unfathomable well of our infinite ignorance of the past i understood that telling that accepting manuel mena's story was to tell and accept the story of all of them that manuel mena would live on in me as all my ancestors lived in me i thought that too and in the end drunk on lucidity or on euphoria or on stealthy joy, I told myself that this was the final and best reason to tell Manuel, Manuel Mena's story, the definitive reason. If Manuel Mena's story had to be told, it was most of all, I said to myself, to reveal the secret I had just discovered in the realm of the shades, in the profound darkness of that forgotten ruined palace where his legend began and where I saw it then as if written in a radiant, never written masterpiece, I was going to finish my novel, that transparent secret according to which, although it might be true that history is written by the victors and people <coughs> weave legends and writers fantasize, not even death is certain. This does not end, I thought, it never ends. Well, thank you. It does. This does end. Um, 
Thank you very much for being here. And please give Javier another round of applause for being here. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.